if you're like these that were uh, interviewed, uh, maybe you're looking for something more. Perhaps you're thinking when you're younger, hey, if, I just, if, if I'm successful, if I have a successful family, successful business or career, everything's going to be great for me. But you feel like there's something missing. And even those, and this is a lot what I'm addressing during this series, many of those are going to a church, maybe this one, but another good church, and you're hearing the messages, they seem to be relevant, the worship seems to be exciting like it was this morning, and meaningful and heartfelt like it was this morning, but then you go out into your daily life and wondering, where is the miraculous in the life? I mean, the whole idea of Christianity started out with a miraculous birth, and then Jesus' life ended with a miraculous death and a miraculous resurrection and a miraculous time of going ascending up into heaven. The Holy Spirit came down, and many miracles happened. What about my miracle? What about my wonder in this life, the awe of life? And so we're going to be addressing that during the next seven weeks, and we're going to be starting this morning in the book of Ephesians. Because one of the questions we, gotta, we have to ask ourselves, you know, does, is this coming for us? Or is it just one of those things where, okay, now that I'm saved, now that I've received Jesus into my heart, one day I'm going to make it to heaven and I'm going to receive all of my inheritance. But in the meantime, I've just sort of got to put up with life, do the best I can. Is that really what God wants for us? In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul, who was um, saved on the road as the Bible says in the, in the book of Acts, on the road to Damascus, in a miraculous way, wrote 13 different books in the New Testament, many of those from prison, as he did this one, in the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was an important church. In fact, Paul spent more time at that place than any other place in his entire ministry. When the book of Revelation, the very last book of the, book, uh, the uh, New Testament, was written, the Bible was written, the first church that that letter the book of Revelation went to was the church at Ephesus, big-time city. And so Paul's addressing them, and in these six chapters, he addresses, first of all, in the first three, a, a special doctrine that we're going to be looking at this morning, a teaching that is, that is so relevant to our life that is foundational to everything that we're about as a, as a believer in Christ. And then the second part of the book, chapters 4 through 6, is an application of that. And so as we look at this, I want us to see three very important things and three reasons why I am confident this morning that God wants something more for our life than we are experiencing in this life right now. Now, last week I closed with a story. And the story goes like this in the New Testament. A leper came to Jesus and he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me whole. And Jesus said, as he reached forth his hand, I am willing. Now, what that man, again, was asking was, God, do you love me enough? Lord, do you love me enough to do something about this? Because I've seen your power. I know what you can do. So if you want to do it for me, you can do it. And he says, I am willing. I do love you enough. So let's see how much this morning that God is willing, that God loves you. First of all, I want us to see in this passage um, what he did for us. 
And we cannot go over this enough in the church. We, we review this at the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. We'll be looking at that next week and having the Lord's Supper next week in remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. So let's remember for just a moment what he did. In verses 1 through 7, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Ephesians chapter 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Now, I want you to notice as I'm reading this passage how powerful it is. Hopefully, you're following along uh, in the Scripture. If they're not on the screen, uh, hopefully you'll follow along with the scripture. Look at, uh, look at this. In the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he had blessed us in, as, he, as the beloved, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which this grace he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And he goes on to talk about other things we'll get to in just a few moments. But as we look at this, I want us to look, first of all, in what he did for us. As we look, if we had time this morning, we could look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we can understand where we came from. He said in verse 1, we are dead, we were dead, in our trespasses and sins. So the Bible sets it up and says this, you had, you had no hope whatsoever of ever being saved. There was no door that you could go into for heaven at all, no matter where you came from, what you did, how good you are, how bad you are, it's just simply you were dead in trespasses and sin. The old spirit, it says, was dead inside of you. And so Jesus came, it says, to redeem us. Verse 7, the redemption by his blood. Now, this word redeemed has to do with buying someone out of a slave market. There were 6,000 slaves in the Roman Empire. And when you're a slave, you have to do what your master says to do. Now, we don't want to think about ourselves in a time where we were not a believer. We don't want to think about that time as being a slave to sin. But think about the habits. Think about the addictions. Think about the things that were going on in our life at the time. That is a perfect description of where God, where we were with God back then. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. However, Jesus came along and did something for us. Now, let me say, say this, why it's so important. You and I, listen to me very carefully, the more miraculous we feel and we realize our salvation was, the easier it's going to, for us to believe God from the miraculous in our own life. The problem is we don't see it as being that great of a miracle sometimes. We don't even think about it that often. Many of you were saved maybe at a very young age, and you don't even remember being dead in your trespasses and sin. Or it's been so long ago, you, get, you just can't simply remember it. Now, here's what happens. Everyone sets up a standard of holiness, as it says here. He has made us holy in verse 4, and blameless, righteous, blameless, righteous before him. Now, we think about the word righteous as being 
again, just kind of a synonym for holy. But holy means to be set apart. Righteousness means to be right with someone. Now, we think to ourselves, if, if I'm going to be right with God, I've got to have certain standards. So we set up those standards for ourselves, and some of them are even in the Bible. But we set up these standards for ourselves, and maybe they're really high, and we can't reach them, and so we end up feeling guilty about the things that we have done. On the other hand, we think to ourselves, well, you know, they're pretty low, and I've reached my standards, or I've been a good person, I think I've been better than my neighbor, I've been good to my wife, I've been good to my husband, been a good mother, been a good father, I've been successful, then anxiety sets in because you don't know, is that enough? Is it enough? Is it enough to really win favor with God? We just simply, without the Bible, we have no idea what the score is. In a book called The Trial, Franz Kafka wrote a book of a man waking up at the age of 30 years old and finding himself, I think it was, in prison and, or in jail, and he was going to be tried for something. But through the whole book, he couldn't figure out. The whole book was about, here's a man being, being put on trial, and he has no idea what he's on trial for. And he starts imagining all kinds of things. The anxiety just runs wild. It, was it this? Did I do this? Did, did somebody catch me doing that? He never really knew why he was going on trial. Well, if you and I set our own standards, what happens is the anxiety sets in because we don't know the score. We don't know. The Bible says we're going to be judged one day. How are we going to be judged? We don't know how we're going to be judged. We have no idea what's going on. We don't know what the standard really is in life. But here's what God says about it. Isaiah 53. It, just, it looks at Jesus's, uh, Jesus on the cross from the Old Testament. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, he was esteemed, they esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's us. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God says, look, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. How many sins did it take to make us a sinner? Are you sure about that? Are you really sure? Now, wait a minute. Now, wait just a minute. Think about your own life and how you live for just a minute. When you look at someone that has come from a background that is a lot worse than yours, maybe they came off the street, they were in alcoholism, they were in drug addiction, they just got out of prison, don't you think that they're a little bit worse sinner than you? Maybe. You see, that's what I'm talking about. We think to ourselves, well, my salvation is a miracle, but really I sort of did something for that. I, went to, I grew up in church. I had, a, I had a good family. No, God says all, all the sheep have gone astray. All of our works are like filthy rags. Even if I preached in the flesh, it would be a filthy rag before God. You see, we will not understand the miraculous power of our salvation and what Jesus Christ did for us and the sacrifice he made on the cross for us until we realize 
what he had to do to save us who we are sinners even if we do it one time. All we like sheep have gone astray. What was the, what was the, uh, what was the result of him dying on the cross and shedding his blood on the cross as he died there and bled there, hanging between heaven and earth, abandoned by his father, hanging between two thieves, taken down, taken down on the cross, buried in a borrowed grave, treated like a criminal that he was not. What happened in our life? The Bible says this in verse 7. The redemption, he bought us out of a slave market. He purchased, remember that, he purchased us, and because of that, we have been forgiven of everything that we've ever done, according to the riches of his grace. Look up in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons. We've been adopted into the family of God. That is something that's, that's not only beneficial, but is staple to Paul's theology and doctrine and what he believed. We've been adopted. We are part of the family of God. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The only thing I want to get to right here is this. We are saved by what? We are saved by the grace, by the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in his wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will. What happened? Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He sent his Holy Spirit down to this earth, and the Bible says he draws us. He makes known to us the mystery of his will. He reveals to us. We, we don't study and simply find out things about God. He has to reveal them to us, and he has done that through his Son. The Bible says no one has seen God at any time, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has explained him. And so you and I are drawn by the Spirit of God. The Bible even says that we're chosen in Him. Now, we can look at that, and, and, and really it means probably two different things. One, we're chosen. Jesus Christ is the chosen one, and when we go into Him, we are chosen in Him the way the Israelites were chosen into Abraham. But there's also a mystery here of what God does in eternity past. And however you look at it, However you look at that word chosen, however you look at the word adoption, however you look at the word of the Holy Spirit revealing things to us, we have to come to one major conclusion, and that is God initiated your salvation. And we have to receive him into our heart. We simply respond. Now, you know, people think, well, you know, I got saved, and I might get saved, and I, yeah, I might receive Christ, as though... We receive some sort of uh, credit for that, and God really ought to let a lot of things go because we've been so kind to him to receive Christ. Sort of like one of your kids or grandkids coming to you, say one of your children, come to you and say, Daddy, can I, can I have a dollar so I can go buy you a present? Well, yes. Here, take a five. So he comes back and he buys you a $5 present. And you think, wow, this, this is really touching. I can't believe you. You thought about this on your own? Yes, I did. And uh, you bought it on your own? Yes, yes, I bought it for, just for you. So, well, thank you very much. That's, that's very touching. So, well, Dad, now, <clears throat> let, let me get some things straight now. Since I bought you a present, from now on, my life is my own. You can see I can make it on my own. <laughs> Stay out of my room. Get off my case about make, making up my bed. You know, I've got it from here. 
Dear friend, just because we simply say, well, I've, I've got a favor by receiving him into my heart, and therefore I'm sort of Lord of my own life, and he can, you know, my, my ticket's punched to heaven. No, that's not what it is at all. You've been adopted into the family of God, forgiven of all your sins, and now we have a new Lord in our life. He has revealed that to us as a plan in the fullness of time. Verse 10, unite all things in him talking about this church, the church, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we obtained an inheritance. Listen, it's not over yet. You just simply don't receive Christ, get your ticket punched to heaven, and that's all there is. And so we understand that Jesus Christ, our advocate, our lawyer, the Bible says in 1 John, will stand before God one day and he'll give an account for your sins and mine. Man, what a Savior. And he, see, here's the thing. Jesus is not going to get to heaven and just, you know, here you are standing up beside him. So I'd, I'd just like to say something here about Jim. The father says, yes, what would you like to say? He said, well, you know, Jim just didn't really make it in life. You know, he, he only sinned one time. He probably sinned three or four times, I think six times a day. He averaged about six sins a day. And not only that, but he did this and he did that, but he did, he, he did some good things too. So, you know, Father, how about giving him a break? That's not how it's going to be. Jesus is going to say, this is all he did, but we're not even going to talk about all that. Because I died on the cross for him, and he is justified by faith, and he, does, he, he needs to go to heaven. He's going to go to heaven, not based on his life, but on what I did as his Savior and Lord. It started off in a virgin birth. It ended with a resurrection that no one can explain except the miraculous power of God. And your salvation was not of your own doing. Your salvation was because 2,000 years ago someone died on the cross for you. The Son of God died on the cross for you. And not only that, but it's applied to you 2,000 years later. Nothing we've done really for our salvation. We just simply said, I do at the wedding. And God lavished his grace upon us. Now, if he is going to have that kind of miracle at your salvation, a born-again experience, why do you think he would want us to live just a normal, everyday, unmiraculous, unsupernatural life with no answer to prayer, begging all the time for something good to happen to us? No. As the Bible says, as you have received Jesus Christ, so walk in him. We have received Jesus Christ by the miraculous power of God, and we are to live by the miraculous power of God. <clears throat> Three of you can get excited about that. <clears throat> I'm gonna get, I believe God's going to get the rest of you on this one. Who are you right now? Who are you right now? Eight times he uses this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in the 13 verses, the first 13 verses. Who are you? Who does that make you? There's a story um, happened years ago in Atlanta, true story. A man was in an accident, and uh, they found him, put him in the hospital, and when he woke up, he had amnesia. True story. And for years, no one could discover who he was. Nobody claimed him. In fact, he went on Dr. Phil, and Dr. Phil did a whole show 
and used some of his resources to get the word out. Nobody claimed this guy. To this day, as far as I know, he does not know who he is. Do you know who you are? Psychologist, another true story. Psychologist tells his own story. He just couldn't take it anymore. He just sat down right there. In the, he was in the city, New York City, sat right down on some apartment steps. Just couldn't take another step. Man walks along, doesn't recognize him, and he said, who are you? Psychologist looks up, famous guy, and he says, I wish I knew. Who are you? How do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself as maybe, I don't know, an engineer, a businessman, a mother? You get your identity with your children. As a dad, how do you really see yourself? Because how you see yourself is going to determine how you respond to the life that you're living right now. And so as we look at this, he says different times, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So who are you, are, who are you right now? You see, it makes a difference because if, you're a, if you say, well, I'm getting my identity, i got to admit, if I were to just to say, this is who I am, I'd have to say, I'm a parent. Let me tell you from personal experience, your children grow up and they leave the house. In fact, mine left the state. One of them left the country. It's going to end. Who are you then? Who are you then? Who are you when you feel the guilt because you feel like you, haven't, you must not have done enough because your children just didn't fig figure out, it didn't come through the way you thought? What about you're a successful businessman, in fact, people want a piece of you everywhere. You know, they're calling you, they, you can't even take a vacation. Boom. You know what happens? You retire. Who are you then? Nobody's calling anymore. Who are you then? You see, the, the problem is, is this. If I see myself, if I identify myself as a dad, I'm going to pour myself into being the best dad I can be at the sacrifice of everything else. If I see myself as being an engineer, I'm going to do the same. Pour myself into that business. If I see myself as a pastor first, and, I, and sometimes I struggle with that, of seeing myself as a pastor before I even do it as a, a believer in Christ. If I do that, I'm going to pour myself into the church at the expense of everything else. And it's always going to disappoint. Either number one, you're not going to be successful, and you're going to feel guilty. What did I do wrong? What, what did I do wrong? Why, why is my, my kids coming out like the way? I must have done something wrong. I, it must be me. I need to go get some counseling. Something's wrong. You know, my, my business is not doing what it needs to be doing, and it must be me. Or my business is doing really, really well, and now I can kind of care less. It's just not enough. But Jesus never goes away. And he's always enough. What happened in Christ? Listen to me very carefully. We, the Bible says in John 15, Jesus said, I, you have been grafted into the vine. When you graft something and you, you take a limb and you actually put it into the tree and it grows around it, it becomes part of the tree. You've been grafted in. You weren't we were not naturally born of God. We were adopted into his family. And therefore, our identity now, and that's what in Christ means, our identity now is found in Jesus Christ. 
I am not defined by my nationality, first and foremost, nor by my occupation, nor by my political party, nor by my uh, being a father or a grandfather. I am identified first and foremost as a believer in Jesus Christ, being in Christ. Why is that important? When I see myself identifying with Jesus Christ, I see myself in a different light. Now I'm a king's kid. I need to live like a king's kid. You know, as a pastor, and I get a lot of my identification being a pastor, and I know a lot of guys that have retired and just gone into depression because of it. But as a pastor, getting my identity from that, I must admit, I act differently than some of you sometimes because I'm a pastor. Somebody doesn't wait on me in the restaurant like happened the other day with my family. You know, I have to be kind about it. Some of you can just, you know, you just feel like you can get up and very quietly just tell the person what you think or just not leave a tip. Cheapskate. But... Wow, that pastor didn't even leave me a tip. See, you act differently because of how you see yourself. When you and I look at Jesus Christ as being our identity, we have the more power to resist temptation because we're not that person anymore. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 2. Look, the Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside your spirit and ignited the old spirit. Now, you walk worthy of how you were called into Christ. What about success? It's going to determine success, how God sees success. Look at Psalm 1. Just throw this out. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on that law day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water who bears its fruit in its season its leaf shall not wither and whatsoever he does he will prosper why because i'm getting my identity in jesus christ and now because i get my identity in jesus christ i want to put myself into that relationship and what he can do and trust him above everything else because that's just who I am. You've said that before, haven't you? Well, it's just who I am. Well, I can tell you who you are. You are in Christ. Getting your identity in Jesus Christ. It's going to give us a, a bigger ability to forgive others. It, it's going to, we're going to see our, our future in a different way. Even how you and I respond to problems is going to make a difference. Now, how does God see us? You may say, well, I, I sort of see myself you know, as a loser. Satan tells you that all the time. He's the identity thief, you know. He, he comes but to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus said, but I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So he steals it away and you make a mistake. You, you idiot. Now, I can't say this with kids around but because I'll, I'll hear from it. But you are stupid. You've told yourself that. You'll never be victorious. Why, you don't even deserve the blessings of God. 
You think God's going to answer your prayer? Why even try to pray? Look at your life. Here's how God sees you. Let me give you a cross-reference here. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Peter, the apostle Peter, agrees with Paul, as he would because it's the Bible, by saying this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that he may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's just going over Ephesians 1 again. And neither one of them had ever read those books, as far as I know. The Holy Spirit was giving them the same message. What does he say here? He says, you're chosen. You are acceptable to God. Even before the... Look, look back with me here in... Um, he says, but you are a chosen race. It's talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were chosen to do not only by God, elected by God, but elected by God to do a, a certain task and to live in a certain way. We are chosen. God chose you before you chose him. He drew, drew you with his spirit. Look with me again. You are valuable. Not only, not only are you acceptable, but you're valuable. Look what it says. You're a holy nation. And here we find in verse 4, you are holy and blameless in love. Holy. We think, the first thing we think, oh, you know, you're, you're righteous, you're, you, you live in a certain way, you don't sin. Holy means to be set apart as something valuable, something special. You are a holy, set-apart, special person to God. Let me share with you something that's really common sense. You've heard it before. Two things that really determine the value of anything. Number one, who owned it? You know, a matter of fact, if you set two pair of tennis shoes side by side here, one of them, Dwayne Mercer's old tennis shoes, and over here is the one worn by LeBron James during whatever championship year it was with the Cleveland Cavaliers a couple of years ago. Which one would be worth the most? No, now let me say something. These are, we'll just say my old tennis shoes, they're not, but we'll just say they are autographed, you know, one of those fake autographs um, by LeBron James. It's his style of shoes, same style, same year. Which one would be worth the most? Oh, by far and away, the shoes worn by LeBron James. I was going through, uh, I, I sold my baseball cards years and years ago as a college student as I was uh, looking back in my closet and found all these things and I was able to get like $185, no kidding, for about 1,500 cards. Back then, that was a lot of money. And uh, in fact, I, I say 185, I'm old. I can't remember how much I got for them. It may have been 385. <laughs> Threw out a number at the top of my head. But I don't want to lie to you, so I'm just telling you, I don't know. But it was just a few hundred dollars. Years later, we're going through a baseball card shop right up here in Winter Springs. And in case I saw a Mickey Mantle card that I had. I had that card. $200 for one piece of cardboard. His cardboard is, was worth $200. Now it's probably $2,000. Just keeps going up. Why? Because it's a matter of who paid for it. 
I was reading the other day about Babe Ruth's jersey worn. The, this is the biggest thing ever, sports memorabilia ever sold or auctioned off. It went for $4.4 million. And it was a Babe Ruth jersey worn in the 1920 World Series. $4.4 million. Who owned it? Who owned you? You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the price someone is willing to pay for it. You know, how much is your home worth? Well, you can do all kinds of gymnastics if you want, but I can tell you how much your home, home is worth. It's what someone is willing to pay for it. How much was Jesus willing to pay? How much does God really love you? One man said, I guess a pretty penny because Jesus Christ died for me. How much are you worth to God? You are worthy, you're worth it. But you are also family. He says in 2 Peter, he says, we're the family of God, the people of God. Here in verse 5, it says we've been adopted into his family. Now, this is, this is like an unconditional love. Adopted. Once you were adopted in the Roman Empire, you can never be disowned. You just receive the inheritance no matter what. You can disown your own child, but once you adopt somebody, that's it. That's the context of what we're looking at this passage. And he says this, his love is unending. Now, we talk about unconditional love and all the love movies and everything like that, but we're not. We don't have that because we're broken. We're just broken people. But God's love is unconditional. He says in verse 13, You've received the Holy Spirit whom you are sealed. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Spirit of God's come to live inside of you, live inside of me, and will be there until, as Ephesians 4, 30 says, until the day of redemption, until the day we get to heaven. The leper was asking, Lord, do you love me enough to make me whole? And God says, of course I do. You're part of my family. But notice he says, You've received mercy. You've been forgiven. Verse 7, in him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of the trespasses and sin. And then finally, he sees you as not only being forgiven of everything that you've ever done, but he sees you as being someone capable. He says we are a royal priesthood. Now, what does that mean? Well, a priest will minister to God and minister to others. And that's what we do. We are capable of doing miraculous things in the name of Jesus because we've got the Spirit living within us. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.